0: Hello and welcome to The Wittenberg Door, a weekly broadcast that examines what Lutheran Christians believe about God, the world, and us. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and I invite you to join us for the next hour. And later, we will take questions at 740-383-9944, that's 740-383-WWGH, or on Facebook at The Wittenberg Door, where you can submit your questions live. Please join us now on The Wittenberg Door. Good Friday morning, everyone, and welcome to The Wittenberg Door. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius. I'm pastor at Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and today I'm with you for the next hour until noon, and uh, today I don't have my friend and bodyguard, Alan Dean, so I'm feeling a little unsafe, but... Uh, We want to thank you all for joining us. Now, this morning, we want to talk. take your calls. The number here, if you want to call in with a question or comment, is 740-383-9944. That's 387-WWGH. And if you like, you can contact us on Facebook at the Wittenberg Door Facebook group. You can submit your questions online, and we'll try to address any questions or comments you may have. So thanks for being with us. Usually here on the Wittenberg Door, we answer questions, uh, we cover stories, evaluate them according to a biblical perspective. Today we're not going to do that because I want to discuss with you um, kind of an understanding of Scripture that we have, and uh, I'm going to start by asking the question, what is Scripture? Now, for most Christians, we believe that Scripture is God's Word. It's the way that God speaks to us through the apostles and prophets, their writings. We believe that God has spoken to us through the scriptures. Um, At the end of our lessons, and when we're in our divine service, and at the end of our lessons, when the lesson is finished, the, the reader will always say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God. That's because we have an understanding of God speaking to us through the holy writings of the apostles and prophets. Now, uh, for most of Christian history, people have believed that. They've responded with the same liturgical response that we do in, on Sunday uh, in, play, in churches all over the world and uh, throughout Christian history. In modern times, uh, in some of the uh, mainline churches where you know, certain customs and traditions are still held to, they may still say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation still respond, thanks be to God. But in some cases, uh, those churches have taken a position on Scripture that's not entirely in accord with uh, the historic Christian church. And so they may say that, uh, you know, the, the the Bible is a book written by men uh, who had ideas about God, maybe uh, inspired thoughts about God, but what the text of Scripture says is not the very word of God. In our congr- our our denomination, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, very much disagrees with that position. We we uh, we say we confess about Scripture what Peter says in the second epistle of Peter when he says that no prophecy of Scripture was uh, ever came about by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, or in some versions say men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we, we believe Scripture is God's word. But if once you establish that, once you establish what we call the authority of Scripture, then the question becomes what is the purpose of Scripture? Why does God give us the Scriptures? Uh, So the first question is what? What are the scriptures? The second question is why? Now, there are those who think, and many Christians who think, that the Bible is kind of a manual for living. So uh, just as uh, you go to your dealership, you buy a car at the dealership, and when you drive your new car off the lot, you look in the glove compartment, and there's a, a manual in there car with the instructions for the car that tells you when to change the oil or what pressure to have the tires set at or how to change the light bulb out of the headlight and uh, you know different helpful things that'll help you take care of the car help you maintain the, the integrity of the car and its and its uh, 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 mechanical functions uh, and so Christians sometimes approach the scriptures, with uh, the same idea in mind, that that just as uh, you get a manual for your car, the human machine comes with a manual as well, and that manual is called the Holy Scriptures. And so what often uh, it gets boiled down to is, is, are the Scriptures merely kind of this manual for moral living? The Bible tells us what to do. It tells us what God wants from us. It tells us how to live, how to think uh, uh, how to treat our neighbor, uh, how to worship God. And so you look in the Bible and you find all these instructions and you do them. And hopefully God will look upon you with favor and, and be gracious to you because of the things you do. Unfortunately, that's a position that many, many Christians take. And it's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know our founding fathers, for instance, uh, John Adams, uh, our second president, who uh, who said that, uh, who was a Unitarian, that is, he didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus was the only way to heaven. But he did believe that uh, in the Bible we find certain moral principles. Uh, and so he agreed with the moral principles of the Bible. John Quincy Adams, his son, the seventh or uh, sixth president, who uh, would read the Bible every day, not because he was looking for a savior, but because he was looking for instructions on how to live, how to please God. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, wrote a wrote a version of the Gospels in which he took out all the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and left in place only the ethical teachings of Jesus as a, as a, uh, uh, a pamphlet to give to the Indians so that the uh, indigenous peoples of America would have some instruction on what uh, civilized people believe and uh, the, the principles that we live by. And Thomas Jefferson, of course, was a deist, that is, he was one who believed that God made the world, but God was kind of like the clockmaker God. He wound up the watch or he wound up the clock and just let it go on its own. And he, and he gave uh, the world these moral principles to live by and now he's uh, kind of off the scene. He's not really involved in our lives and doesn't really care except for he wants us to treat each other right. Now, uh, this is, I think, I believe this is the majority view. And why is it that people take this position on the scriptures? Well, I believe that it's because we have a fallen human nature. And that fallen human nature is always trying to find a reason, find an excuse or, or uh, pry God's love out of heaven by our works. Our fallen human nature always wants something to do so that we can establish our worth before God. And so many many, uh, many people who uh, confess they were Christians have believed in this kind of this, uh, what is called an opinion of works. How do we get into heaven? We get into heaven by being good. We get into heaven by being moral. We get into heaven by pleasing God. And so we went to work our way to God, and the Bible becomes the manual that tells us how to do that. Now, Christ was familiar with this attitude. Uh, He encountered it often in uh, a group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that they worked their way into God's favor and that God rewarded them on the basis of their righteousness. That is, if they lived the right way, if they pleased God as he did live their lives, as God commanded them to live their lives, then God would be favorable to them. He would have mercy on them and, and would allow them into his heaven, would reward them on the basis of their works, uh, not only in the life to come, but in, in this life as well. So Christ comes to the Pharisees and and he confronts this this attitude in them. In John chapter 5, and starting in verse 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, you search the scriptures for rules. You search them for moral principles. You search them as a guide to tell you what to do in order that you may win God's favor by your good life. But Christ adds something. He says, and it is these, in other words, it is these scriptures that bear witness of me. And then he says, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. In other words, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees in this passage is, if you approach the scriptures as a book of morals, as an instruction manual, as a list of do's and don'ts, So that you can earn God's favor, you're missing the point of the Holy Scriptures. He goes on and he says, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I, uh, that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. That's a very telling verse there, because Moses was the lawgiver. Moses is the one whom God, through whom God gave the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets to the people of Israel. And of course, uh, a number of other, altogether, there were 634, I think, ordinances that came from Mount Sinai, things that the Israelites were to do, things they weren't to do, ways they were to live, how they were to handle certain situations, and all in an effort to establish their righteousness before God. And so the Pharisees read Moses, they studied Moses, they looked for those instructions And they, in that sense, as lawgiver, they set their hope on Moses. But my friends, the law doesn't do anything but accuse you. Jesus says, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. And what he means by that is, Moses gives the law. And nobody keeps the law. The Pharisees, who searched the scriptures looking for rules for life, who dedicated their life to the study of the scriptures, didn't understand the scriptures, and the law that was given them through Moses, they didn't keep. They didn't keep it. No man alive has kept it. You haven't kept God's instructions for life. I haven't kept God's instructions for life. The scriptures say that all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that means is when we rely on Moses, when we set our hope on moral principles instead of a Savior, we will find that those moral principles will come back and bite us. Those moral principles, those that law that God gave through Moses was only given to reveal something about us. God wanted us to see our condition. In that sense, the law of Moses was something like um, uh, an x-ray machine. You know, you you have a cough, you go to see your doctor, Doctor says, I'm a little worried about that cough. I want you to take an x ray. And so you go to the go get your x ray done. The results come back, and the doctor shows you your x ray. and He shows you now look at that spot on your lung. It looks like you have pneumonia, and we're gonna have to give you some antibiotics to, to clear up your pneumonia. Well, uh, in the same way, what the law does is it examines us, okay, and it searches us. It tries us, and it shows us something about ourselves. St. Paul, in the third chapter of Romans, says that um, uh, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, through those commandments that Moses gave, in whom the Pharisees set their hope, Through that law comes the knowledge. In other words, we we learn to know we are sinners by examining God's law, by studying God's law. Because when we try to do it, when we try to carry out those moral principles, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to find that we always fail, that we fall short, that we don't do what God tells us to do, not in our thoughts, words, and deeds. We may be able to keep kind of an outward form of obedience to the law. The law says you shall not murder. And so we might be able to refrain from shooting our neighbor when he parks in our parking spot. We can certainly uh, keep from doing that. But the anger that we feel and the unforgiveness that we harbor uh, against our neighbor is what accuses us. And Christ equates that anger and that unforgiveness with murder itself. Because we're no longer wishing our neighbor well. We're no longer wishing our neighbor good things. We want our neighbor to get what's coming to him. We want vengeance on our neighbor. Maybe not vengeance that we're going to take it out, but we're kind of in the back of our minds. We're hoping that karma does its work. You know, people talk about karma. Uh, What is the karma? Karma is this universal way in which we hope vengeance is taken out on our neighbor. Right? It's kind of an Eastern concept, it's not a Christian concept, karma. But many people feel, even if they don't intend to carry out any kind of vengeance, they harbor this unforgiveness, they harbor this anger, they no longer wish their neighbor well, they no longer wish them good things, and they Uh, uh, they harbor an an attitude about their neighbor. Uh, You walk down the street and you see someone uh, begging for money, asking for a sandwich, asking for something to eat. Your heart gets cold and you walk away from that person who may need your help. Yes, he may be uh, running a con, but he may indeed need your help. And you turn away from him. You've done the same thing. Christ says, as as murder that individual. And so uh, just that one commandment, you shall not murder. What does it primarily do for us? Folks, it accuses us. It shows us our sin. It shows us ourselves as we really are. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. And then he says this, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, what Moses gave them, what the Pharisees understood Moses to be, was a lawgiver. But Moses also is a prophet. Moses doesn't just come to us with the law; he comes to us with the gospel. Now, uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And throughout those five books, there are uh, certain prophecies that Moses teaches us. For instance, right after the fall, in the first few chapters of the of the Bible, the third chapter of the Bible. When Adam and Eve do what God has commanded them not to do, they take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they eat it in disobedience to God, and they incur condemnation because of their sin. And immediately, even in those verses, God comes to them with the gospel and with mercy and with love and with the intention to forgive. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And Christians have understood that as uh, what what has been called the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first utterance of the gospel, which uh, which means that that verse The serpent who worked such evil and worked death and worked sin uh, through temptation, uh, worked death into this world, Uh, his work that spoiled the world with Adam and Eve's help, Uh, God would send a savior, the seed of the woman, someone who would descend from Eve, who would crush that serpent's head, which is exactly what Christ does at the cross when he dies for sins and he crushes any power that sin has to condemn us and he uh, uh, washes away sin through his blood, right? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. What's right there in the third chapter of of Genesis, in Moses' writings. And uh, God had pronounced death on the day that they sinned. And what instead happened was something else died. Someone else, some some other creature died. For God took the nakedness of Adam and Eve and he clothed them with the skins of an animal. That means something had to die as a substitute in the place of Adam and Eve. And that substitute on that day was a type or a foreshadow of the substitute that would come, that innocent creature, uh, the the Son of Mary, who was uh, uh, the Son of God, who was who was uh, who came down and took on human nature, uh, became man like us, so that he, as the innocent man, he as the man who doesn't sin, could go to the cross and suffer our punishment that we deserved by our sin, and rise from the dead, and bring this gospel of immortality, this gospel of light, uh, this gospel of life to light, so that he could send out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, and to baptize and to teach. And so when Moses is, is writing his first five books of the Bible, he's not only writing the law, but he's writing about the Savior. We see it in, in things like the offering of Abraham of Isaac by Abraham. We see a picture, of a father, who for the love of another, offers up his only begotten son, and, and this is a, is a foreshadow of what the, the apostle John speaks of in, in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, as a substitute, for us in our place to take our punishment and to suffer our death uh, and to rise again so that we may have life. And all, all throughout the scriptures you see this in the, in the different types and shadows that come to us through the writings of Moses. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And, and by, by the way, and there's also these direct prophecies. For instance, in Deuteronomy, the last book of Moses, When Moses says that God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, to him you shall listen. Now that prophet that God was speaking of was the Son of God himself who came and became man for us, who is standing before the Pharisees, who have been studying the the writings of Moses. And now that one of whom Moses spoke is standing before them and speaking to them and saying to them, If you believed Moses' writings, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Moses wrote of Christ. What we find in the Bible, folks, is actually two things. We find the law, which uh, uh, tells us what to do, but not for the purpose of... Uh, giving us mere instructions that if we obey, we will earn God's favor and and find his blessing, but for the purpose of showing us that we are unable and unworthy of his blessings, so that we might, in helplessness, turn from any faith or confidence in ourselves, turn to turn to the Savior that the scriptures present and believe in the one who died and rose again on our behalf or what the what 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 we refer to as the gospel the gospel teaches us that we have a savior so that we may be justified not by our works not by our good deeds not by our love but by god's love for us by his grace that is unmerited favor through faith that is trust In the Savior who has come, who died and rose again on our behalf, and that we may be justified by grace through faith. That's what uh, St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, uh, from uh, from faith to faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And that's the program. That's the that's the meaning of the scriptures. Then it presents to us a Savior in whom we believe for salvation. Uh, I'm going to also read from you, uh, read for you, uh, just the idea here. From Luke chapter 18, there's this parable that Jesus tells. He says, and he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer standing in in, in the first century, the culture of the first century, in the Jewish culture of the first century, the tax gatherer was considered one of of the worst of sinners. If any first century Jew would have been listening to Jesus, when he said Pharisee, they would have thought good guy. When he said tax collector, they would have said bad guy. Right? Well, here the good guy... Thanks God that he is not like other men, that he fasts, that he ties, and in uh, the in the tax collector now says, "God, uh, be merciful to me, the sinner." And this is where this this uh, what the human opinion of works gets turned on its head, gets turned upside down, because. Jesus ends the parable by saying, I tell you that this man, the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified, that is, declared righteous, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. In other words, the Pharisee comes to believe that he is not capable of earning God's favor. And he relies on the mercy of God. And that mercy of God, folks, we find in the gospel where God sends his own son to bear our sins and to bear our punishment. And that is God's mercy. And so we throw ourselves on the mercy of God that is found in Christ that we may be justified by faith and not by works. And uh, so it really does matter how you approach the scriptures. Uh, finally, in the Gospel of John, just one last thing here. Uh, there's a, a number of different verses I could have brought up. Second Timothy three fifteen, where 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 Saint Paul tells reminds Timothy that from childhood you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. In other words, what is the purpose of scriptures according to St. Paul there? The purpose of the scriptures is to make us wise for salvation, to introduce us to a Savior in whom we believe for salvation. And in John chapter 20, after Jesus is risen from the dead, comes to his disciples, appears to the disciples, appears to Thomas, and the apostle John is wrapping up his gospel and he says, uh, there are many other things that could have been written about Christ. But he says, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So folks, don't ever get the idea that the scriptures are some kind of manual for, for, for uh, running the human machine. Uh, Some list of instructions or moral principles that if we adopt, we will earn God's favor, that we will stand before God as righteous because we've lived the way we should have lived. None of us have lived the way we should have lived. You haven't lived the way you should have lived. But God has sent you a Savior so that you may be saved in spite of the way you've lived, that you may be saved because of the way that Jesus lived, perfect and righteous in thought, word, and deed. And you get the credit for his good life, just as he got the credit for all your sin, for all your murderous thoughts, for all your adulterous thoughts, for all your idolatry and and trust in money and things and people and power in all the ways that you've offended a holy God, Christ got the credit for your sin so that you may have the credit for his good life, so that you may go away justified, declared righteous, not for your own sake, but for the sake of Christ. And folks, if you pick up the Bible and you read the Bible and you miss that point, then you've missed, just as the Pharisees missed, the whole point of the scriptures. Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, he says to the Pharisees. It is these that speak of me, and you are unwilling to come to me, that you may have life. If you set your hope on moral principles, if you set your hope on God's law, then that law on the last day And and every day subsequent to that, that law is only going to accuse you. It's only going to tell you and and point out how you've fallen short. And so if if you only put your hope in that, then you've missed the whole point of the Scriptures because the Scriptures are given so that we may find a Savior and we may have the salvation that God prepared for us in and through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's my lecture for the day. <laughs> now, folks, uh, this next part of the uh, program, we're just going to uh, uh, let me remind you that if you have a question or a comment, uh, our number here is 740 383 9944. That's 383 WWGH. Uh, you can call with a question or comment. You may also. Uh, post to our Facebook page. We have a Facebook group called The Wittenberg Door. If you want to uh, post a question or comment, we'll, we'll be happy to uh, address that question or comment on the air. But now we're going to go to uh, our lessons for the upcoming Sunday at Gethsemane Lutheran Church. And the lessons uh, begin with the intro, which is found in Psalm 13, which says, O Lord, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That salvation that I was just talking about. goes on, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In other words, God has been generous to me. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Well, you know, well, that, the law kind of makes us feel like that, kind of makes us feel like God has forgotten us, God has hidden his face from us. How long must I take counsel, the psalmist says, in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? God, The psalmist says, consider me and answer me. Let, let, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, bring me to the gospel, bring me to that good news, that I may rejoice in your, so my heart may shall rejoice in your salvation, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I prevailed over him, lest my foes... Rejoice, the psalmist says, because I am shaken. And again, O Lord, I have trusted in your steadfast love because you haven't left me. You have answered, you have considered me and answered me. You have brought light to my eyes so that I don't sleep, the sleep of death. In other words, you've brought to me this Savior. That's what the psalmist is really saying. He's trusting in the salvation that God gives because of his bountiful goodness to us. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And that's the psalm that we uh, speak to each other as we begin this service. Uh, The Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, And folks, I was uh, telling you earlier that, you know, of course, Moses is the author of Genesis and that Moses does more than give us the law. Moses in his prophetic role, Preaches both law and gospel, and this is a wonderful example of this. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, "After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision." Now, this is before Abraham. Abram became Abraham. Abraham was renamed. Abram was renamed later, and the name that we all are familiar with, Abraham. As uh, Abraham puts his faith in God and his promises, he becomes a new man. Uh, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Isn't that wonderful? The promise that God makes to us. Uh, We can't have faith, folks, until God starts making promises to us. Promises like whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Promises like, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away, right? Jesus says to his hearers, uh, uh, but I will raise them up on the last day. Those are good and, and solid promises that we that we believe because they're true, because God doesn't lie. And God is speaking the same kind of promises to Abram there. If you're not Abram, I am your shield, your, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, he, and Abram said, "Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir." And behold, the word of the Lord. Now remember the heir. What was he? The heir to well, we could say well, he's the heir to Abram's property, you know, all his sheep and oxen and his male and female servants. But that's really not the inheritance that that Abram was talking about. Abram was talking about the inheritance of the promise. God had made Abram a promise, had brought him into the land of Canaan. He said, to you and your descendants, I will give this land. And uh, that promise was spoken to Abram, and yet he didn't have an heir. He didn't have a son. And so he's saying, you know, <laughs> the promise has to come true. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Moses writes, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. There's the concept of justification there. Uh, that word justification is not a word that gets bounced around a lot, but what it basically means is just as if I'd never sinned, just as if i lived the perfect life. It's a Roman uh, courtroom t- term. It's a forensic term that was used in the Roman courts, and it meant that you were declared innocent, right? So God makes this promise to Abram, so shall your offspring be. Now, uh, Paul, St. Paul tells us later that promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as to many, but to your seed, that is the one, that is Christ. So really, in, in, in these promises that God is speaking to Abraham, what he specifically has in mind is the promise and the inheritance that comes through faith in the Savior. And so Abram hears these promises, he believes the Lord, and God counts him as righteous. God justifies him. Just as I was uh, reading earlier from uh, Luke chapter 18 in the, the parable of the tax collector, so God does for Abram here. Not because Abram was righteous, not because Abram uh, lived the life that God commands us to live, there are some uh, very stark examples of Abraham not living that life, of Abraham being cowardly and and, uh, uh, not protecting his wife, Uh, uh, other instances where Abram shows his sin, and yet God makes promises to him. Abram believes these promises, and God counts it to Abram as righteousness. Just as we sin, God speaks his promises to us sinners, as sinners, and uh, uh, the Holy Spirit comes through those promises, grants us faith in Christ. We believe the promises, and God justifies us. He declares us righteous. Uh, the epistle this week is from First uh, John chapter 4. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. There's the gospel again. What is that love that God has for us? The love that motivated him to send his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So John writes in the, in, the, in the first epistle here, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We have confidence in the day of judgment, folks. Again, stopping here. We have confidence in the day of judgment because we have a God who loves us, who sends us his Son. Because he is also, back with John here, because as he is, so also we are in this world. Now, what he's saying there is that this love of God that saves us, this love of God doesn't kind of remain dormant or dead in us, but it begins to produce a certain fruit, certain Christ-like fruit. So for So it's fair to say that when someone uh, believes in Christ and becomes a Christian, there should be evidence of their faith. And and the evidence of their faith is that they begin to live uh, haltingly, not always, not perfectly, but they begin to love as God loves. As God is, so we also are in this world. We begin to love God, we begin to love our neighbor. And that's what, what John is telling us here. That becomes very important for the gospel lesson, by the way. John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That is God's perfect love casts out our fear. He says, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, uh, you know, if we if we fear God's judgment, then we haven't really truly believed in God's love. We love, John says, because he first loved us. It's God's love that... that uh, uh, saves us. It's God's love that rescues us. It's God's love that begins, not perfectly, but begins to change us. If anyone says, John says, if anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he's a liar, for he does not. He who does not love his brother whom he has, uh, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So here's the law again. The law now not being spoken to us in a way that that uh, not primarily to just convict us of sin, although it's very convicting. And we may have realized as we were hearing this that, uh, you know, we've done things against uh, against this love. And, uh, uh, and yet this the, the law is being spoken to us in a way that instructs us. How do we live? What do we do? Now, I'm going to read this last lesson and then we're going to close the program. Uh, Jesus said, uh, There was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abram said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus also in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that you may warn them that they may also not come to this place of torment. But Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And folks, uh, a lot there that I really don't have time to go over. We're getting ready to close the program. But I just want you to understand, of course, that because um, this man, as the epistle taught us, he, he uh, showed this kind of this lack of current, concern for his neighbor, Lazarus, laid at his gate. And uh, so we see kind of evidence of this man's unbelief. And of course, we see the consequence of his unbelief, that he ended up in in torment, that he ended up being the subject of God's judgment forever, God's wrath. And folks, hell is real. And that it is the consequence of unbelief. It's a consequence of unrepentance. So I, I exhort you all to repent, believe the gospel. But what this man really missed is just as the Pharisees missed, he missed the fact that Moses and the prophets, the holy scriptures, leads them to a savior. So uh, it, it shows evidence that he really didn't, like the Pharisees that we started with today, he really didn't understand the purpose of the scriptures and he didn't believe the scriptures. You know, our hope God speaks, God comes to us with the Holy Scripture, comes to us with this Holy Gospel, comes to us with these promises. We believe, and, uh, and uh, we are rescued from the fate of death. Um, and that's uh, and that's really what's kind of going on in this parable. There, Like I say, there's a lot there. We really didn't have a whole lot of time to address it, but uh, may, we may uh, start with that next week and just kind of go over that a little more because there's a lot there. Or, if you like, uh, folks, if you uh, don't have a church home, Gethsemane Lutheran Church is uh, located at 219 East Church Street, just beside Rocky's Bicycle Shop, kind of a landmark in Marion. Uh, 219 East Church Street. We have uh, services, divine services, on Saturday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. And we have, of course, our Sunday service, at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And so if you don't have a church home and you need somewhere to come and hear the word of God and and uh, to uh, hear the good news uh, of our Savior, uh, we invite you to come and, and uh, uh, worship with us and come and hear the good news with us and come, as the psalmist says, come and rejoice with us. Come and sing of this great salvation of God because God has not left us alone. God has heard us, God has answered us, and God has given us a Savior. We thank you for being with us this hour, and we hope you'll join us next week for another edition of The Whitbrook Door. to WWGH Radio 107.1 LP, Marion, Ohio, The Talking Place.